1870, a group of American explorers were exploring the backcountry of, of Wyoming. And on September the 18th, their party traveled, traveled down the Firehole River and entered into the region just outside of an area known as the Kepler Cascades. They were making slow progress, and while they were, they were carefully observing the nature and the wildlife and the landscape. And then suddenly, with no warning, they heard a sound. And you can imagine their surprise when they saw 500 gallons of water erupting 150 feet in the air. And naturally, they decided to stick around and spend some time observing this phenomenon. And they soon realized that this particular geyser did not erupt just once, but at regular intervals, some 19 times a day. And for that reason, as you have guessed, they have named it Old Faithful. Now, 150 years later, exactly 150 years later, you can visit the Yellow National, Yellowstone National Park, or you can follow them on Twitter, which is less exciting. But you can visit and witness this incredible spectacle. Park rangers are able to predict within about 10 minutes when the next eruption will be. So that in between eruptions, you can go to the gift shop. Your kids can watch Netflix in the car so they're not bored on their national park vacation. And then catch the next one. And what's, what's remarkable about Old Faithful is, is its predictability. Yet even Old Faithful isn't perfectly faithful. I found this amusing. I was spending some time on the FAQs of the National Park Service, and they had this particular question. One person asked, I heard Old Faithful isn't as faithful as it used to be. Is it slowing down? This is on the National Park Service website. I quote, It depends on what you call faithful. The famous geyser currently erupts about 17 times a day and can be predicted with a 90% confidence rate within a 10-minute variation. Because of the changes in circulation that resulted from the 1959 and 1983 earthquakes, as well as other local and smaller earthquakes, the average interval between eruptions has been lengthening during the last several decades. That line caught my attention. It depends on what you call faithful. What do you call faithful? Or rather, who do we call faithful? And what is it that we mean when we speak of the faithfulness of God? Well, it's God's faithfulness that's at stake when we talk about this theological concept called immutability. Now, we've been learning some big words, right? I wouldn't want you to come tonight and not learn a fourth big word. So here's your, your big word for the evening, immutability, which is a term that we use simply to describe the unchanging character of God. God is not mutable, not pliable. The Bible speaks of this in a great many ways, the, the unchanging nature of God. And one of the ways is in Psalm 102 when the psalmist speaks of, he compares God's unchanging nature to the most unchanging thing that he could think of. And that was the heavens. Listen to Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. They will change like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Friends, not only is God the creator of the heavens, 
Not only did he pre-exist before them, but he will last even when they are gone. Even the heavens change, but God is the same. His years have no end. Perhaps one of the most common ways that the Bible speaks of the immutability of God is with this image of rock. That the unchanging nature of God is like the image of a rock. And sometimes God is actually called rock. Not like a rock, but the rock. And you can imagine, like in a pre-industrial, uh, pre, uh, in a pre-modern age where there are no hydraulic drills and there's no explosives, things like that, the rock was the image of just absolute unchangeability, unchangeableness, indestructibility. And since like a rock, God does not change, they understood God to be a place of protection, a place of refuge, a place of safety. David, or in 2 Samuel, we read, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I, in whom I take refuge. Or one of my favorites, Who is a God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? Even now, we can understand the security and the shelter that a rock can provide. When I was uh, 20 years old, um, I had the chance to go study in Spain, in Madrid, Spain, for, for a summer. And I spent six weeks living in, in downtown Madrid in a high-rise apartment with this strange old lady who fed me strange food. And, and, and I took a subway, uh, the metro, to, to my classroom each day. And I'm not a city boy. I'm really not. I was getting really antsy. And, and uh, our, our group, the group I was studying with, we took a trip one week and we rode this bus out to this beautiful monastery. And everyone was excited about the monastery, but the monastery was at the foot of a mountain. And I was really interested in the mountain, right? It was beautiful, right? And it had this structure at the top of the hill I could kind of see up in the distance, and there was a lake halfway up. It's one of those that kind of cascaded down and then gathered water and then kind of kept going down. And a few weeks later, tired of the city, I got on a bus by myself, and I went back to that mountain with the plan to spend the night on the mountain. Now, Madrid in July is like high 90s every day and 100, 100 degrees. And so I just assumed, I mean, I've, I've been outside before. I felt like I was fairly competent. I assumed that in the evening it might get down to the 60s or something. I was wrong. <laughs> so I hiked up that mountain without a sleeping bag, uh, without even a heavy coat, without a tent. And I was just going to spend a night under the stars. Well, the temperature dropped into the 40s and the wind was howling. I didn't even have, I had sandals on. <laughs> and my plan was to sleep in this little rock shelter. This, they had built this rock shelter in the 1400s. But the windows would, would smash every few seconds. And it's just this loud. Anyways, I, I walked off and I crawled in the dark off to the side. And I got on the, the side of the mountain where the wind wasn't blowing. And there was a cleft in the rock. And I cuddled up and I curled up in that rock. And I thought, I am such an idiot. <laughs> And I ended up hiking down in the pitch dark and <laughs> found, got back to town at about 4.30 in the morning. But I was not in the city, so it was, it was worth it. Even though I was cold and weary, I knew the more that I could tuck myself into the cleft of that rock, the safer that I would be. Even though a rock conveys many ideas, it vividly portrays this image of, of stability and security. 
the kind that only God, the unchanging one, can provide. The nations rise and fall. The stars will one day fall from the skies. But since God does not change, he is a refuge for his people. So for 250 years, the church has sung, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. When it comes to this important doctrine, the church has more to go off than just an image. An image is good, but we have more than just the Bible's rock imagery. The Bible actually declares that God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. If you'll turn to Malachi chapter 3, we can read about this together. You can find Malachi by finding Matthew and then going back. Malachi chapter 3, and while you're turning there, in, in the book of Malachi, God gave Malachi, the prophet, a very difficult task. He was to confront Israel in the midst of their sin. The priesthood had been corrupted. The sacrifices of the people were unacceptable. And because of their disobedience, Israel was, was effectively shaming God before the nations. They were, they were putting him down, and so God had to act. God is indeed holy, and since he's holy, he must respond, he must vindicate his name. And in chapter 2, verse 3, he makes this incredible statement. Look, find that one. 2, verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offsprings, and you shall be taken away with it. Right? What remarkable language. <laughs> Um, I just, I, sorry, I had to read that. This was part of the backstory here. God, and, and so God calls Israel to repent, saying that this is serious. I'm going to bring judgment. That's part of the judgment promise. And, and, and they don't. And so they face extinction. And then God makes this surprising comment there in chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Israel, are not consumed. I think this is an incredible verse. Why is it that God does not consume Israel? Is it because of their faithfulness? No. It is entirely because of God's character. You see, God had made covenant promises to Israel. And since he had covenanted with Abraham and, and Isaac and with Jacob, he had committed to live in this relationship of grace. And so he would not destroy them. The security of the faithfulness of God extends from his perfect character. He could have withheld it. But why didn't he? Because of the doctrine of immutability. God does not change. And it, be, it helps us lay this, build a lesson on this important foundation that our relationship with God is based on his unchanging nature. His unchanging nature. In fact, the reason, the only reason... That God has not destroyed you today for your sin is because God does not change. He does not change as you and I do. He does not wax and wane. His goodwill towards you does not change with your goodwill towards him. Because yours changes, doesn't it? It is stable. God's immutability, his unchanging nature, is what results in mercy for his people. 
Let's take one more stop on this biblical foundation. I don't think I got all this in here. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep going. Uh, if you think about James chapter 1, you'll perhaps remember in James chapter 1, James is encouraging believers in the trials that they're facing. And among other things, he warns them, he says, be careful of making the mistake that God is the one who is tempting you, right? God has good things in store for your trials. He's, he's doing good work. So be very careful not to fall into the mistake that God is tempting you. And, and, and he explains why. Well, God cannot be tempted and God cannot tempt other people. Why? And here's... Here's where this is relevant for us. Because God is good. God is good. Good things come from God, not bad things. So he can't tempt. And this will never change. If you see there in verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17, James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. What a precious text. I find it interesting that James calls God the father of lights. But we, we wonder what that means. Why was he saying that? And not only does it evoke this image, an image of God we've already read, comparing God's unchanging nature to the unchanging nature of the heavens. But here, James is taking that and he's, he's pushing it even further. Not only is he saying that God is the creator of lights, pre-existing them, but he sets up a nice quick illustration. Yes, the heavenly bodies are stable, but they also change, don't they? I mean, you can literally see the sun moving throughout the day, the moon and the stars moving throughout the night. And as they move, they produce shadows, right? The sun is in one place in the morning, it's shining in your back window, and then later in the day, it's shining in the front window, and then later it's gone, right? produces shadows. In effect, it seems to, it's changing, but not God. Not God. God's character doesn't change throughout the day, and his character doesn't change throughout history. And so the implications for us here are massive. This is, this is incredible to think about. If you think about James' argument, here's what he's saying. God is good. And since he doesn't change, guess what? He's good today. In the middle of your trial right now, he's good even now. Which means, think about how this works. If you can go back in the history of Revelation, and if you can determine anything that is true about the character of God, then you can say with confidence, if that was true then, it is true now. And and that's really exciting to think about because if you can find just one instance, just one instance in all of history That God is gracious. What does that mean? He's gracious today, and he'll be gracious in millennia. Just one instance. Or just one instance that God is patient. Just one. All you need is one. You don't need four. Just one. Or one instance that he's good. Then you would have enough evidence to last you for all eternity to know exactly what the character of God is like and how he will act according to that character. Just one instance. Because if God was good to Noah, that means God is good. If God had mercy on Nineveh, that means God is merciful to some. If God is patient with Israel, that means God is patient. 
Friends, it takes only one instance, one demonstration of God's character to establish what his character is like forever because he doesn't change. Now, we've got to apply it correctly, of course, but that's a remarkable thing. It only takes one act and God doesn't change. So let me just ask you this. How many instances of his patience do we have? How many instances of his love, of his mercy, of his justice, of his wisdom, of his power? How many do we have? And how many do you think you need? Do you see how this gives so much gravity to every act that is recorded for us in redemptive history? If there is ever just one time that God was good, then you can trust that God will remain good. And he will always act in ways that reflect his goodness. That's exciting to think about. Now, I've already said this, but I want to be sure that we've got this clear. When we're talking about immutability, we're, we're saying that God is unchanging when it comes to his essence and his perfections, his nature. I'm not going to venture as much into the philosophical expressions here. Uh, my head is still hurting from last week, right? Because, you know, I, I, I change. Um, but one of the ways that smart people talk about this, I think it can be helpful if, you, if we can track, is they say God has no potential, right? Now, this isn't like the discouraging thing you'd say to the delinquent kid on your basketball team, right? You're not, you're not talking about that. Um, what, we're, what we're saying is that unlike humans, God is not getting better. He's not, they would say, becoming. God is not becoming because he already is. Theologians would say that God is pure being, Herman Bavink, he put it like this, we creatures are becoming, right? We're changing, we're improving, or worsening, but God is pure being. He, he is. See, we have potential. We can change for the better or for the worse, right? God, however, cannot become. He doesn't have potential. He is pure being. As Thomas Aquinas put it, God is pure act or pure actuality. I know that sounds confusing, right? It's kind of philosophy kind of talk, but let's think about it like this. When a human being changes, or really when any being changes, there's two options. The human being can go from worse to better, right? So take, for example, your knowledge of World War, War all right, your ability to say World War II. All right, take your knowledge of World War II, right? You have, you have some knowledge, but it's incomplete, right? Does anyone exhaustively understand World War II? No, right? So you can read a book. You can listen to a podcast. You can watch a documentary, right? There are things that you can do to learn, right? Because there are things that you don't know. I'm reading a book about D-Day right now, and I learned that the Navy engaged in all these secret operations to gather soil samples from all the beaches up and down France and uh, even up into Norway, right, to figure out the most suitable places for, for landing. And there were remarkable <laughs> sort of adventures that they go on, right? Since you don't know about it, you have potential, potential to learn, and so you can go from incomplete knowledge to fuller knowledge, right? You go from worse to better, and that's, that's change. So the question is, can God change? Does God have potential? Could God improve upon himself, improve upon his wisdom, his knowledge, his love, or whatever? No, of course not. Because that would mean at some point his knowledge is 
incomplete. It's lacking. All right? So we say God does not have potential. Okay, so, so that's changed from worse to better. Well, you could also go from better to worse. Right? Change can go from worse to better. We get fatter or we get thinner, right? Whichever one is better in your situation. A being can go from better to worse. In sixth grade, I knew my locker combination. I couldn't forget it, right? I don't remember it now. I went from better to worse. I lost knowledge, right? My knowledge changed. Well, can God change? Well, no. He, we, he can't go from worse to better. Can he go from better to worse? Can he lose no, of course not. That would mean that he's no longer perfect. So, so we would have to say this doctrine is absolutely essential to his character. If it was not true, if it was somehow lost, God would not be God. And we could go on and do this for all of his attributes. We'll just do one. Take his power, for instance. God's power. If God's power were to change, it could only change in two ways. He could get more, right? Right? which would mean that he's lacking in power now. He'd have to get stronger. Well, that doesn't work. Romans 1 says that he has eternal power. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. That's power. Gabriel said to Mary, with God, nothing is impossible. That is an expression of God's power. God has no potential in the power department, right? He cannot become more powerful because he is already as powerful as he can be. Well, the same thing is true if it went from better to worse, right? If God diminished in his power. But God isn't like Samson. You can't give God a haircut and him lose his power. Isn't it funny to think of how fragile Samson's power was, right? It's not like that with God. God is eternally and immutably powerful. Now, this raises lots of questions. Um, I'm going to, for sake of time tonight, I'm going to skip this question. Does God change his mind? Um, the answer, in short, is no, he doesn't. Um, but he uses language like that to help us understand what he does. So we'll, we'll skip that for tonight. So I want to go on and, and think in terms of application. What, how, do, how do we take this sort of doctrine and apply it to our lives? Well, the Bible's teaching that our God is unchanging is a doctrine that is precious with many glorious applications for us. Because not only does it safeguard the perfections of God's character, but it provides us with a wonderful source of hope. Of hope in the midst of instability. It's a source of hope in the midst of an ever-changing world. I think more than anything, as I have been thinking about this doctrine, the major application for me was how precious this is as one who lives in a world of change. All right, we, Mark listed a number of sources of fears up on the board. How many more could he put up there? Is, I mean, is there an end to the things that we can be afraid of? I've talked with folks that have washed their hands so many times that their hands blistered. Right? There's all sorts of things that we can be afraid of. Because we live in a world of change. And change is very unsettling for us, right? Some, remember, you can only change in two directions, right? Um, better or worse. So sometimes change is for the better. Anybody get a call from your insurance company that says, hey, good news. 
your rates have gone down, but you have the exact same coverage. Has that ever happened? I know it's happened to me one time, right? <laughs> I'm fine with that change. I have no problem giving you less of my money, right? Uh, you know, I'm fine with that. Or maybe a relationship improves, relationship with the child, or maybe you get a raise. Maybe your health improves. And these are wonderful things. We like that. We joke about not liking change. Hey, we like that kind of change. I don't mind a raise, of course, see? But what is there to guarantee that that won't change later? If my insurance rate gets better, what's the next thing I'm going to worry about? Will it go down next year? Have you ever noticed that? As soon as a good thing happens, you're like, I might lose it, <laughs> right? It's incredible to think of. I was just talking with a friend who sold, a, has sold his house, and he, he sold it for a massive a massive profit, right? It's completely caught off guard. And, and he was excited about it for like a day and a half. And then he was immediately afraid about the next thing. I was like, man, what are you doing? You just made $180,000 on your house. Like, just relax. Like, God's taking care of you. This is, this is a good thing. But that's our nature, isn't it? To immediately fear losing it, even the good things. And that's because nothing is permanent, but, you know, most of the time in our lives, it seems like changes are often, they're for the worse. You know that every time you experience loss, that's because there's some sort of change. Change is involved. Your insurance premium goes up, and there's loss. Or death is loss. That's change. Or perhaps the establishment of a bad law or the appointment of a bad judge, right? These are change. Change takes things from us. Friends, we live in a world of decay, and in a world of decay, what is safe? What is absolutely safe in this world? What is one thing that you can set aside and say, this thing will never be lost? There's nothing that we can point to until we point to the God who does not change, the unchanging one. All of the grief, all of the anxiety, all of the stress, all of the fear that you and I face is because on, on some level we live in a world where nothing is permanent. And you were not made for that. You were not made to live in that world. We long for permanence because God has bound up the eternity in our hearts. I was reflecting on how this longing is captured by the sentiment. It's in many places in Hebrews, but remember Hebrews 13, we, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What good is anything that is lost? Knowing that it will be lost. Friends, our world is full of suffering and loss, and there's no good thing here that is totally safe except God. And it's because he is the unchanging God and he is the unchanging good. And so I want to encourage you with the primary application tonight, as you have that sense of awe and wonder in your heart that every time that you experience some sort of discomfort, some sort of pain, some sort of loss, because you live in a world that is uncertain and is chaotic, run to the rock of ages. You long for permanence. There is a place of permanence. For in Him we find the safety and the permanence that we long for. Nothing else is stable. Nothing else is safe. The Bible says that God is our refuge and our strength. 
very present help in trouble. You can run to him. In a hymn that I think has been mostly forgotten, composer and writer Frederick Faber once wrote, he said, O Lord, my heart is sick, sick of this everlasting change. Though it's unresting race and varied range, change finds no likeness to itself in thee and wakes no echo in thy mute eternity. There is no change in God. God can be trusted only because he is great, but because he, not only because he is great, but because he is stable. If God was great but not unchanging, then he would, there would be fear that he would not be great tomorrow. But unlike man, God does not change. It's remarkable how much more we can appreciate this when we, when we think about, it's, it's, it's remarkable how we can think about how wonderful the immutability of God is when we compare it to us, right? When we look at his immutability and our changing nature, because as creatures, we can't help but change. We are always changing. We are anything but stable. We might make jokes about the incarnation, but we recognize that there's some truth to what this one poet uh, jokingly said to the potter. Don't slap that clay around so roughly that may be your great-grandfather's dust that you are so free with, right? We get it. We, we all turn to dust, Right? We humans, even when we have the best intentions, we cannot make absolute guarantees because we change. I was thinking about this even when I made my wedding vows. I was absolutely and remain as absolutely sincere as I could possibly be. But my love for my wife is not like God's love for my wife. He is a better refuge for her than I am. My love is not guaranteed because I don't know what tomorrow holds and I change. I change for better or for worse. I age. My love is subject to moods and the desires of my heart, which change, sometimes depending on a basketball team. I'm very unstable, right? There's no true stability in man, but oh, how there is in God. When God pledges everlasting love, he's actually able to guarantee that love because he never changes. So isn't it wonderful, this precious doctrine of election, that he declares his love for you and sets it on him rather than on your ability to believe? God is not moody. He's not like us. You can always go to him. He will always respond to you in perfect alignment to his perfect character. He doesn't change. God can't be manipulated. Satan can't talk him into doing something unwise or unloving or unjust. Nor can the angels. God cannot be coerced. He's not in conflict with himself over what's best. In fact, all those foolish prayers that we utter, have you ever had some of those? If you think back to high school, you pray anything silly in high school? Think back to last year, right? All those foolish prayers, God cannot even be coerced by us. And isn't that good news? In fact, God isn't just immune to change, but he rules over all change. The gospel itself is about change, isn't it? The story of the Bible is that God is changing. He's transforming a people 
who have been ruined by sin for his eternal purposes. He's redeemed us. He's ch- he, that's a change, right? He's taking us from worse to better. And he's sanctifying us. He's preparing us for that lasting city where the old things will have passed away and only the eternal will remain. You remember what Paul said. I wish I could read this whole chapter in light of this, this precious doctrine. But remember, he said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. And he goes on to say, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. Friends, we are made for permanence. And God is remaking us so that can be realized. Friends, our God does not change. And he does not need any change. He is not becoming. He is pure actuality. We, on the other hand, we are in need of change. And it is only by God's grace that we are becoming for the better. We are being transformed into the image, into the likeness of his son. And so let's close with this sobering and humbling reminder. Let the doctrine of immutability remind us that when it comes to change, when it comes to pleasing God, change must always be on our part, never on his. We're always the one that needs to change, not God. I'm going to close with a prayer penned by A.W. Tozer. He has a book on the attributes of God, which impacted my life as a teenager. And in his chapter on the immutability of God, this is his prayer. Let's close with this. O Christ our Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. As conies to their rocks, so we, so have we run to thee for safety. As birds from their wanderings, so have we flown to thee for peace. Chance and change are busy in our little world of nature and men. But in thee, we find no variableness nor shadow of turning. We rest in thee without fear and without doubt and face our tomorrows without anxiety. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.